If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And we have taken a break in our study of Exodus for this Advent season. If you were with us last Lord's Day, we looked at Mary's praise there in Luke chapter 1. And today, uh, we're going to continue uh, walking through this chapter by looking at Zechariah's prophecy in Luke 1, uh, verses 68 through 79. And we'll talk more about the background to this passage in a moment. But for now, uh, just so you're aware, uh, Zechariah, uh, when he was told about the birth of his son, uh, he doubted and wasn't sure, maybe didn't believe, and so uh, God took his voice away. Uh, he didn't have his voice for about nine months, and when he first spoke, as best we know from the scripture, uh, these are the words that he said in response to the news that God had given him, and that time he had to consider it while he was mute. So we're going to look at verses 68 through 79 out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this text for us this Lord's Day. And this is what God's word says to us, picking up there in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. If you would pray with me, church. Father, we thank you that we can know the way of peace through Christ. And so I pray as we look to your word today that we would see clearly the gospel and that we would respond clearly to the gospel, that you would remove anything that might hinder us from that response. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you are aware that at this time of year, PNC Bank always releases a, a price index that goes along with the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. Each year they look at those items in the 12 days of Christmas and how much they would cost if we were to use those, as the song says, to communicate our true love to another. Uh, this year, 2016, the cost of that true love, according to the 12 days of Christmas, is $34,363.49. So if you're wanting to show your true love, uh, you will probably need a small loan this year. Uh, that is up just a bit from last year. It's up seven-tenths of a percent from the cost they said last year. Uh, one of the items that actually went down in cost was a partridge in a pear tree. Uh, you can get that $5 cheaper this year. Uh, but one thing that went up was two turtle doves. Apparently, there's a large demand for turtle doves these days because two turtle doves will cost you $375. I was thinking about that number. You can't really split that in half so easily. 
I guess they only sell them in pairs. But anyways, uh, two turtle doves will cost you about 30% more this year than last year. Uh, the most expensive gift, uh, the price remained the same. Uh, in case any of you were looking for seven swans a-swimming, uh, that's going to cost you about $13,000. Uh, I'm not really sure where you would find that. Maybe Amazon Prime Shipping and get it this week. Uh, the most inexpensive, inexpensive gift, this might not shock you dairy farmers, is uh, eight maids a-milking. Uh, that's the cheapest thing you can get. So, uh, and that's a maid of milking. I would think a maid of milking would be worth more than Terry Waldridge. So, um, they're they're just not worth much, according to PNC at least. Uh, well, looking back on these things, it, it's not hard to look and compare numbers and to see. Well, if this cost this last year, here's what it would cost this year. Uh, we can do that. You know, we can look back and we can come up with the exact percentages of, of what something used to cost and what it costs today. The, the harder part, the trickier thing, is to look ahead and try to predict what something's going to cost in the future. And, of course, there's people who try to make a living doing this. They try to play markets and hedge bets and look ahead and say, well, I think this is going to do well and this isn't going to do well. But, but nobody can predict that with 100% accuracy. And in fact, for every person who maybe makes it rich trying to predict prices in the future, there are many who lose it all. Because while we might be able to have hindsight, we don't have perfect foresight. We cannot look ahead and know exactly what's going to happen. And that is one of the many things that separates us from our Creator God. God can not only see perfectly the past and the future. The scripture says God sovereignly directs those things. It's not just his vision, it's his hands. And so we can look back and see his hand at work in the past. And we can look ahead in his word and see his hand at work in the future. But he is the one who holds all these things. Therefore, he can tell us exactly what it is that is coming. And this is what we see God do through much of the Old Testament. Often in the Old Testament, God uses prophets. And with the prophets in the Old Testament, he will use the prophets to speak to his people. Because if you were gathering together with God's people during Old Testament times, that you would not take out your perfectly complete Old Testament. And you certainly wouldn't have had your New Testament. But you would have had the prophets. You would have perhaps had some scrolls from the books of Moses. But you would not have the complete word of God. And so God, through his prophets, would often speak to his people, and he would remind them about what he had done in the past, and he would speak to them about what he was going to do in the future. And so you see this consistent cycle throughout the Old Testament until you get to the end of the Old Testament. And from the time that the Old Testament ends, that time period that it covers, and we pick up with the Gospels in the New Testament, we can estimate that that's about 400 years. And during that 400 years, many refer to that as the silent years. There, there was no prophecy given. There was no word from God. And so if you think about that for a second, 400 years, there are people who were born, lived their entire life, and died during a period of time where God did not speak to them like he had to their fathers and their fathers' fathers through the prophets. That they had the memory, the reminders of what God said in, had said in the past. They had the promise of what he was going to do in the future. But they were in this time of silence where God was not speaking to them. If you were with us last week, we talked about how sometimes we, we feel like we're in a time of silence with God. Sometimes we feel like God isn't moving quick enough for us. 
not operating on our schedule. I read to you a quote I want to repeat again today. It's from Tim Keller's book, Hidden Christmas, and he, he captures this very well. He says this, You cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. He may seem to be working very slowly or even to be forgetting his promises, but when his promises come true, and they will come true, they always burst the banks of what you imagined. When we open up the Gospels, we see that bursting forth. We see God doing something that he had spoken of, that he had promised to generations long ago, but he does it in such a way that nobody expected it. Now, they were looking for a Messiah, but they were looking for a man. They, they were looking for someone to be fully God and fully man. They, they didn't understand. They couldn't wrap their minds around it. In fact, especially when they, you look at where Jesus was born and who he was born to and the context there, this is not who they pictured their Messiah to be. But God moved in such a way that nobody could have anticipated, predicted, <laughs> hedged their bets against it. And he does that through his proclamation then to several people. And we see these in that first and second chapter of Luke. And so last week we looked at how God speaks to Mary and tells her what her role will be and specifically tells her that salvation is coming now through Jesus. And today, the text we read, we see God speaking also through Gabriel to Zechariah. And then after all these things take place, when Zechariah has his voice back, he, he gives this word. He gives this prophecy. Because Zechariah too didn't have the complete word of God. Zechariah had Old Testament scrolls, but even now God is speaking through his people and pointing towards his son. And so we're going to walk through this and look at this passage today. And, and, and as we do, I, I want to give you a little background to make sure you know where we're coming from and where we're going. Turn back there to the earlier part of Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. We, we learn here a bit about Zechariah. To understand his prophecy, you need to understand a little bit about his background. Zechariah was a priest. And so Zechariah would have been a priest of God during these silent years, really on the end of these silent years. And he would have carried on the daily duties of a priest and of the particular order of a priest that he was. He, he had to go to the temple at certain times of the year to, to serve there at the temple. Now, the text tells us here that he was married to Elizabeth that they were faithful to the Lord, that they were very old in age, and that they had no children. They had no children, the Scripture says, because Elizabeth, Elizabeth was barren, and now they're at an age where even if she wasn't barren, they wouldn't have kids because she wouldn't be able to any longer. And so the time comes for Zechariah to go to the temple, and he is chosen in the temple to burn incense. Now that might not seem like such a big deal to you. You know, if I called one of you up this week and said, uh, hey, uh, we're, we're going to do something a little different at church this week. We're going to light some incense, and uh, we wanted you to do it. You'd probably think I was a little weird, and you wouldn't feel real special. You might feel odd. There's not anything about that to us in our context culture today that, that would say that's a special thing. But, but when you go back into the culture that Zechariah was serving in, when you understand more about the temple and the structure of the temple, what happened in the temple, you understand that lighting that incense was a very special privilege reserved for just a few. In fact, historically, we can go back and read in the Mishnah about how they would cast lots to draw from the priest to see who would be able to serve. There were two services, and there were in those two services four sets of lots that were used to determine the participants. And 
many priests would go through their whole lifetime of service and never get the opportunity to go in and light the incense. In fact, once one did, he couldn't do it again. He could only do it one time. So Zechariah here has been chosen to do this. And so for him, this would be kind of the pinnacle of his time serving as a priest. That this would be something very special. But, but even Zechariah could not predict what was about to happen. I mean, he had no idea just how special that was, this was going to be. Because as he goes in to carry out his priestly duties, Gabriel, this angel, this messenger from the Lord, you see there in verse 11, he comes and he speaks to Zechariah. tells him that Elizabeth, his wife, is going to have a son. Tells him they're going to name that son John. He tells him he's got a special plan for John. He even compares John to Elijah. And so as he does all these things, notice how Zechariah responds in verse 18. And then Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? Now, if you remember last week, Mary responds to Gabriel with a question too. Gabriel tells her all that's going to take place. She responds, verse 34, with, How will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, there's a lot we could dig into here, but just make sure you see this. that There's some differences in those questions. Okay? Mary, when she asks her question, she says, how will this be? In other words, so how is this going to work? How is this going to come into place? She, she doesn't express doubt. She doesn't say, well, I don't believe you. She says, how does this happen? This is miraculous. How is this going to work out? But notice Zachariah's question is a little bit different. How shall I know this? So he's not asking the Lord, now how are you going to do this? Now how is this going to work out? He's, how can I be sure? How can I know for certain? And so we see there's kind of more of a hint of doubt in his question. And we also see that in the response from Gabriel. Because of course with Mary, the angel answers her. But notice what happens here. Verse 19 the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and made unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so Zechariah here, in response to his unbelief, is made mute, and he stays mute until John is born. And then after John is born, we see there, moving ahead now, this prophecy, this word that he then gives. As best we understand, these are the first words this man speaks for at least nine months, if not more time than that. What God said he would do, he does. And now Zechariah speaks. And so we're going to look at what he said because I think there's some fundamental questions that answers. But before we look at that, I just want to mention something. When we're talking about the Old Testament and God speaking through prophets... And we're talking about the New Testament here and God speaking through this prophet. The question then becomes, well, how does God speak to us today? Does God still speak through prophets? Do we need prophets? What was the role of the prophets? Well, there's a lot we could talk about there. But let me point you to a passage. You can write this down in your notes. You can even turn there if you'd like to. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. As you turn there, consider this. You will find many people today, you will find best-selling authors today in Christian bookstores who will tell you, well, God spoke to me and here's what he said. So, so God's got a word for you. God's got a message for you through me. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Long ago, long ago, 
At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So what does that verse tell us? God did this in the past. Long ago, he spoke through the prophets in many ways at many times. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The writer of Hebrews says, you don't need a new word from God. The writer of Hebrews said, you have the complete word of God. God has spoken to you. Hear this. There's nothing else God needs to tell you. Some of you come to church each day and you have this idea, I need a new word from God. You don't need a new word from God. You need an old word from God. You need to listen to what God said. You don't need something new and jazzy and more creative. God doesn't need to speak to somebody while they're walking in the woods and then write a book and then tell you what God has to say to you. What you need is this. And so often the questions we ask, God has already answered but what we want, we want something we can feel. We want something fresh. We want something new. And if that's you this morning, let me give you a word of warning. You are in danger. You are in danger. And I'm concerned for your soul. Because so often what happens when we ignore what God has already said to us, and we go out there looking for some new word. Oh, we'll get a word, <laughs> but it's not from God. God tells us in His Word that there are false prophets. He tells us that there are demonic spirits. He tells us basically, if you want to go find an answer, oh, you're going to find an answer. But it's going to lead you astray from the Gospel. And so friends, we don't need something new. We need to revisit something old that God has said and as we revisit the old and as we walk through passages like this one, there's much that we can learn from, from them. Beginning with the answer to one question, the first one I'll put there in your notes. What have we been saved from? We use that word saved a lot in the church. You've been saved. Have you been saved? Oh, I got saved. Oh, I remember when I was saved. We, we talk about that term, but one, we need to further define it. And two, we need to ask, well, what is it that we're being saved from? We see here, Zechariah, the very first thing he praises God for is for redemption. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. If you were with us last week, you know that Mary, the very first thing she praises God for is that same thing, for God her Savior. Zechariah and Mary both understood their sinful condition and their need for a Savior, and they're praising God that now, through the coming Messiah, they will be saved. But again, what's that word mean? My guess is for most of us in this room, when we use words like redemption, we're probably thinking about coupons. And when we use words like saved, we're thinking about shopping trips. You know, I redeemed this coupon. I saved this much money. So some of you, rather than saying how much you spent, you say how much you saved as if that means you didn't spend anything, you know? But if you actually saved $30, that means you would come home with $30 more than you left with. But, but we tend to phrase things in this, oh, I don't want to talk about how much I spent, but man, I saved this much. And so when we use these words saved and redeemed, we don't use them in a biblical context at all. So then when we read passages that talk about him redeeming us, saving us, we need to better understand what that means. 
maybe a word that we need to use more that would help us is the word rescued. He, he has rescued us. Because chances are we all have a similar idea of what that word means, don't we? Turn on the news, you hear the report of, you know, somebody was rescued. You don't need a lot of explanation, you know. Well, they were obviously in a bad situation and somebody rescued them out of it. They saved them from it. Certain stories stick with us more than others. I remember a number of years ago, read an account of a father and son who were down at Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, the father's name was Walter. The son's name was Christopher. Christopher was 12 years old at the time. He was a special kid. He was on the autism spectrum, and he didn't communicate very well verbally at all, but he loved the beach. And so Walter had taken him there to the beach, and the waters were a little rough that day, but Christopher just wanted to get in the water, so there they are in the water. The ocean's getting kind of rough, and, and they get into a riptide, and it just pulls them right off the coast. The father, Walter, holds on to his son as long as he can, but because of his, his special uh, needs and his autism he doesn't understand the need to hold on to his father and so at, at one point his father loses his grasp on his son his son drifts away and as the son is going down this father can see his his son going off to sea his father lasted through the entire night treaded water in the ocean drifted miles offshore and as soon as the sun came up the next day the coast guard ship found walter Got him on board the ship. Of course, he was distraught as he thought about his 12-year-old son. Thought about how long he may have lasted. They took him down below the ship. And then as the story read, a couple of guys from the Coast Guard came down and said, Walter, we need you to come up here. We need your help with something. And he assumed it was to identify his son's body. It had been 13 hours since they had, been, they had drifted into that riptide. 13 hours. They were now eight miles offshore. And he watched as the Coast Guard pulled his living son's body out of the water. That they, they rescued him. They, they saved him. He wouldn't have lasted another 13 hours. He may not have lasted another 13 minutes. Apart from someone coming and grabbing that boy out of the water, he would have perished. Friends, that's what God has done for you and I. God does not help us along the way. God's not watching us trying to cross the finish line, but we're too faint and weary, so He kind of picks us up and walks across with us. No, we are drowning in the ocean, not 8 miles, but 800 miles offshore, with no hope of anything. We can't swim far enough. We don't have the power to do anything. We are going to perish. The Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, <laughs> treading water in an ocean of sin and hopelessness, that God reached down and rescued us through Christ. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be redeemed. And Zechariah not only says... Praise God, He saved us. He tells what He saved us from, verse 71 there. He, he saved us from our enemies, He says. The hand of all who hate us. God's people, as you study them throughout the Word, there, there's always somebody that hates God's people. And you've seen there as we've gone through Exodus how Pharaoh hates the people of God. 
He wants those male babies thrown in the river as sacrifices. He works them hard as slaves. He cares nothing for the Hebrew people. He hates them. To the point that when they leave, he's so angered by them leaving, he just wants to go. And he'd rather just wipe them out even than have them come serve him. But Pharaoh's not the real enemy. The real enemy is the enemy that we see back in the garden. The enemy who comes to tempt. The enemy who comes to persuade. The enemy who comes and brings with him this offer of life. And in reality, it's an offer of death. And so God says in the garden, Genesis 3.15, I quote it all the time, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to this snake, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then we see that is the first book in the other ones in Romans 16, 20. If you read the book of Romans, there's so much there. But the way the book of Romans ends is this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet and the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And so we have this reminder in the word that God has saved us and rescued us. And that involves the gospel where Jesus, when he went to that cross, picked up his foot and crushed the head of the enemy. And he did it so we don't have to. Listen, God is not calling you to be a bunch of Satan-fighting Christian warriors. You don't need to go around life looking for Satan behind the corner and looking to cast him out of something. Christ defeated Satan on the cross, and you no longer need to live in fear of him. And if you don't need to fear him, we don't need to fear man either. In fact, what he also tells us here in this passage is that we have been we have been saved, we have been rescued from, our, from the enemy and also from our fear of the enemy. And notice there verse 74, and we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, we might serve him without fear. Well, we've looked at that expression to serve God in our study of Exodus. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go that they might go serve me. That word means worship me. And so here, Zechariah is saying that because of this great salvation that Christ offers us, we can worship him and serve him and grow in our faith with him without fear. Now, when we, when we talk about fear, there, there needs to be a specific nature of that because there can be some healthy fears in our life. Hopefully, we all have an amount of healthy fear. You know, I have a healthy fear of snakes. If you don't, you're unhealthy. You know, you've got issues. You've got a pet snake, take it out, crush its head. That's, that's what you do with snakes. We went to SeaWorld a few years back. And we were in Bowling Green. A, a generous church member gave us this vacation. We went down there. and I tell you, it was fun, but I'll tell you what I didn't do. I, I didn't go to the Shamu show and say, you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to go swimming with Shamu. You know, if you want to go swimming with Shamu, you got issues. It's a killer whale. In fact, I asked one of the guys there, where's the killer whale show? He's like, oh, it's the orca, not a killer whale. It's a killer whale. I don't care what kind of little plush things you've got and trying to make him your little cartoon friend. You get in the tank with Shamu, all of us would be lunch. So, so there's this healthy fear. Yeah, I'll go watch the show, but there's this barrier between us. I'm not jumping in the tank. I'm not getting a snake as a pet. 
There, there are healthy fears we have that, that are good things for us. There, there are cautions in our life. There are awareness of danger. But then there's also fears in our life that are unhealthy. And I tell you, Christian, we are some of the scaredest people in the world. And that's not healthy. Far too often when crisis come, when the world goes south, when things go crazy, when the enemy seems to be winning, when sin, to be, sin seems to be rampant, we're the ones who seem to go running for the hills and locking our doors and barricading ourselves down. Freaking out. We are some freaking out people. Why? Is it because we trust in God so much? Or is it because perhaps we've become so accustomed to just trusting in ourselves, and we've become so acclimated to the world around us that when it starts to look different in some way, it just overwhelms us and we don't even look to what the Scripture says. We just look to how we emotionally feel and we get scared. Zechariah says in this great word from God that, that He saved us not only from our enemies, but we don't even need to fear our enemies. Far too often I've been with other believers when they've heard reports of Christian missionaries who serve in parts of the world where their lives are at risk. And I've heard these brothers and sisters say to me, well, I just could never do that. And hear me on this, there, there are legitimate reasons that many of us might not be able to go serve the Lord in another country. But if your reason is your fear, that's a problem. Because Christ died on the cross not only that we might have life and have it abundantly, but so that we might not be a bunch of scared, fretful, freaking out believers who are worried to death every time the news comes on and somebody's lost their head for the sake of the gospel. God has called us to be a people who are so passionate about taking the gospel to a lost and dying world that we would say, if it costs me my head, here it is. And if it costs my family, here we are. Because what is eternal you can't take from me. I, I got news for you. I don't want to freak you out this morning, okay? But listen, here, here's, I'm, and I'm not a prophet, but listen. You ready? You're going to die. Just make sure you knew it. I mean. And you can die huddled up in a barricaded cave in fear. Or you can die living your days out for the glory of God. And Christ empowers us that we might live for the glory of God. He has saved us from our sin and from death and from the enemy and even from the fear of these things. But what has he saved us to? Question two there. What have we been saved to? Well, Zechariah now turns and he starts to talk about his son John. That this great gift God has given him. Remember how he lost his voice? He didn't believe God. Well, God's done something in him now, hasn't he? Because the first time he can speak, he begins to praise God for salvation he begins to thank God for what he's going to do through the Messiah. And then he begins to speak prophetically from the Lord this word about what this child will do. He says, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So, so 
So John's going to be this forerunner of the Lord, but not just that. You're going to tell people, you're going to give them the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. You're going to tell them about the mercy of God. And now the, the sunrise has come. We're not, in, we're not in this time of silence anymore. God has spoken and the sun has risen. And now there is a light for those who are in darkness that they might finally have peace. This is a prophetic word that speaks specifically of John, but I think there are many parallels in here to God's call on the believer today. And I want to give you four of them quickly. First, we need to tell people about the Lord. Just as John was called to go ahead and to tell people about the Lord, now we go and we tell them about what has already taken place and we need to tell people about the gospel. Listen, listen. Stop assuming everybody knows about Jesus. Okay? Far too often, we as Christians get so offended when we think someone is taking Christ out of Christmas. that This is like our tax season for being offended as believers. We are so riled up and offended. Well, I can't believe they took Christ out of Christmas. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas. You know, we get all riled up. Just think about this for a second. How do you take Christ out of something if you don't even know who Christ is? How do you take Jesus out of a celebration when you don't even know who Jesus is? Friends, we're not in a culture where a bunch of people run around going, well, I better get Jesus out of this. We're in a culture where people don't know who Jesus is. And you might think, well, Merry Christmas. I mean, it's in the name, isn't it? You you realize that people celebrate Christmas all over the world? They celebrate Christmas in predominantly Muslim countries. I was in Malaysia just a few years ago, early November, walking to the mall. The mall's there like the mall here. Bigger trees and bigger celebrations, and they had Merry Christmas everywhere. But they don't know who Jesus is. Maybe less than 1% of the people I could engage in that mall would actually be able to say, historically, that there even was a Jesus. They'll say Merry Christmas all day long. Friends, we need to be the people who don't get upset about a world taking Christ out of Christmas. We need to be a people who get upset at one another that we never told the world who Jesus was to begin with. And this is prime time for us to tell people. (laughs) Because they're coming to our houses and they're putting nativity scenes in their yard and they're sending us cards and you're walking through the mall and there's songs about Jesus. Uh, It doesn't get much easier than that. Well, what are you guys doing for Christmas? Oh, great. You're, you're going to get together with your family? Well, do y'all, now, do y'all go to church or anything like that during Christmas? Oh, you do. Do, now, do y'all go during the year? Oh, just Christmas? Well, what? Well, how do you, what do you connect Jesus to with the church? Christmas to with the church? You know, I, I found that the only hope I can have in this world is to understand who Jesus is. And there's this open door to talk to him about the gospel. I'll give you a little tool this morning, a resource. Here's a little booklet called The Hope of Christmas. It is not a novel. There's all the pages. And it's a great resource for you to sit down with and just read and go, okay, yeah, this is what I can tell someone. It's also a great resource for you to give someone. Now, you know, don't put it on my windshield wiper today. That's, I know what it says. But it's more of a resource for you to personally give and say, listen, I, I don't know what your belief is about Christmas, but 
But I found my hope in Christ, and I don't know if you believe that or where you're at on that, but do, do you terribly mind to read this and just let me know what you think about it? I've found that most people don't get offended when you ask them to tell you what they believe. Maybe if you just go in kicking down the door and saying, well, let me tell you what I believe, you know. Some of us, are our gospel witness is, is like a fire hydrant. It's just, throw it all out. Oh, I got my job done. Woo. No, we can engage people. We can say, read this. Tell me what you think. You can open up the scripture. What do you, what do you think? Did you know this? You remember that little cartoon with, with Linus and Charlie Brown? You know, that's, that's actually in the Bible. And here's what, what do you think about this? But we need to stop assuming everybody knows about the Lord, too. We need to tell people about the forgiveness that Christ offers. John here goes to tell them about the forgiveness of sin. And in order to tell them about forgiveness, we need to first tell them what they need to be forgiven of. Before we can tell them the good news, they really need to know the bad news. And they need to understand not that they are bad, but that we all are sinful. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23, the wages of that sin is death. And so we need to help them understand forgiveness. And I'll tell you, if you want an opportunity to help someone understand biblical forgiveness, you know when a great opportunity for that is? It's when you're asking someone for forgiveness. And sadly, a lot of us struggle to ask for forgiveness, and I think it's rooted in the reality that we don't understand forgiveness biblically. Because when you do, one of the best gospel opportunities you have is when you go and ask someone for forgiveness. And I've had far too many of these opportunities with my own kids. I fail often, especially in front of my family. And when I do, I try, and I even fail at this sometimes, but I try to go to my kids and ask their forgiveness and to frame it in the context of the gospel. And to say, I need to come to you and I need to ask your forgiveness of me because I failed, I sinned. And the good news that the gospel is, Jesus died on the cross for, for dads who were going to fail and dads who were going to sin. And this thing that I did against you, this sin, this raising my voice, this temper, temper this whatever it is I did, this thing I did, Christ went to the cross for that and He died so that your daddy wouldn't have to live under the burden of that and try to work my way out of that. And there's this gospel opportunity right there. So if you are a bad parent today, hallelujah, you've got a chance to share the gospel. And if you're a great parent today, confess your pride, realize you're miserable, and then go share the gospel. We have so many opportunities and it begins with understanding forgiveness of sin. Point three, we need to tell people about God's mercy. Verse 78, he says, the tender mercy of God. That there's a difference here between grace and mercy. Grace is getting something we do not deserve. It's the unmerited favor of God. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We rightly deserve to drown in that ocean. But God rescues us because of his mercy and places his wrath on Christ. And then four, we need to help people find peace with God. Zacharias says that this light will come to the darkness to guide our feet into a way of peace. And I mentioned this last week, I'll say it again. Peace ultimately doesn't come to a treaty or an agreement. Peace comes when an enemy is destroyed. And that's exactly what Christ did to our enemy. He destroyed him. And so bringing all this together, the last question there in your outline then is this, who do you need to share the good news with? Who do you need to share the good news with? 
Who is God uniquely placed in your life and placed you in their life who needs to hear the good news of the gospel today? Friends, listen, if it's good news, we shouldn't have such a problem sharing it. Some of you, I, I don't even need ESPN or the internet. I'm going to know if Kentucky won or lost, or Louisville won and lost, or if you're really redeemed, if NC State won or lost. You know. Why? Because you're going to tell me. Because you get, you get, some of y'all, I mean, you get kind of crazy excited. I don't know if anybody's told you that. You're weird. And, but you're excited. That next Lord's Day, for the really redeemed spiritual folks who are here, Christmas Day, you've probably opened up gifts. I'm really not going to need to ask your kids what they got. They're going to tell me. Why? Because they're going to be excited about it. Friends, how much more excited should we be about Christ? If we're truly excited about the good news, we're going to tell people about it. One of the most touching things in that story I mentioned earlier with that father Walter and his son Christopher, as he later recounted to the reporters, is when they brought his son on board and he embraced his son, that he quickly went from embracing his son to going all over that Coast Guard ship and hugging and kissing every Coast Guard officer on that board that ship. He was excited. And as he went man to man over and over, he said to them, I thought my son was dead, but my son is alive. What a picture of rejoicing when the dead are brought to life. Friends, you and I were dead. And Christ has brought us to life. And people around us are dead, and Christ can bring them to life as well. Why wouldn't we want to share that good news? If you would, stand together and let me pray that God might empower us to do that very thing. Father God, we do come to you in the name of Christ. And Lord, I just, I just thank you that during this Advent season, we are so reminded of this gift that you have given us in the Gospel. And at the same time, as we're reminded of that, as we're thankful for that, Lord, I, I don't want to make assumptions that everybody knows about Jesus, and I don't want to assume that everybody in this room has responded to that gospel. And so, Lord, I pray for the folks here this morning. I pray for any man, woman, or child who's yet to repent and place their faith in Christ. That, that not through my words or through others' pressure, but through the power of Your Holy Spirit, that You would help their dead, cold heart to come alive, and You help their blind eyes to see and their deaf ears to hear. And that they too might understand the richness of your word. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that you demonstrate your love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that you tell us in Romans 10, if we will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Father, I pray today they would call on you. I pray today, Lord, that we would all call on you. I pray, Lord, today that you would burden us for those that we might know that we might spend time with in the coming week who, who don't know about the hope that we find in christ I pray god you empower us to tell them about that hope i ask this in jesus name amen